Welcome once again to Jim and Pat's Glasgow West End chat. Everything about Glasgow's West End. My name's Jim Byrne and the Pat in the title is Pat Byrne. And this is episode 47, I think. In this episode, I have the pleasure of chatting to Warren McIntyre of the band The Starry Skies. And it's good timing because the band have a new album coming out which they'll be launching in the 6th in Oran Moor and the album is called Be Kind. Now I can highly recommend the album because I've been listening to it in the car probably for about, uh, I can't remember how long, but since since Warren came up to the flat and it's an absolute cracker. Fantastic songs, fantastic arrangements, uh, all together a great... uh, a great release. So my recommendation to you is go along to Oren Moore, uh, listen to the band and grab yourself a copy of the new album. If you can't get there, seek it out online. Now we had a good long chat, very enjoyable and I'm sure you're definitely going to enjoy it. But because it was quite a quite a long chat, I thought what I'd do is I would uh, split it into two sections. So I'm going to put out uh, part one right now, clearly, because you're listening, and I'll put out part two tomorrow, which is uh, the gigs tomorrow, Saturday the 6th, so you can, uh, and that'll give you an aid memoir before you get to the gig. Okay, so I'll not, I'll not mess around, we'll just go and have a wee chat with Warren McIntyre and find out what he's been up to and leading up to this album release, okay? Okay, I've got Warren McIntyre here on Hello. Jim Pat's Glasgow West End chat. And one of the reasons I've got Warren in the chat is because he's got a new album out. It's called Starry Skies. The album itself is called Be Kind. And it's causing some waves. And yeah, it's been going well. Certainly, uh, in terms of local bands, I would say pretty damn successful. Absolutely. It's not often you hear of local bands doing well so when they do mm-hmm. what you need is a pat in the back say well thank done. you very much <laughs> <laughs> appreciate that pat in okay. the back it's lovely so what we're going to do is, is talk about your background and what okay. led you to what you're doing now you know okay. things in your life that you think have been kind of an inflection or whatever yeah. but, uh, so to start with if you tell me your name and what you do okay so my name is Warren McIntyre I'm the kind of lead singer and songwriter for Starry Skies, which is a group based in Glasgow. There's about five of us, Heather Phillips on violin, John Rooney on guitar, Jonathan Lilly on bass and Noel O'Donnell on drums. We also have Monica Queen and a range of other people, Chaz Fraser who's standing at the times. I suppose how I first got into music was, I think it goes right back to primary school and probably about primary five. I quite liked, I was a bit of a bookworm, but I wasn't a really kind of quiet bookworm, right. I mean, I just consumed books all the time, I'd kind of always read the book in the class, like I was at the end by the time we were in chapter two, and I liked poetry, bizarrely, so I right, remember okay. one of my earliest memories is writing a poem that was kind of put up on the wall, and it was about, uh, a, uh, the, the, there was a snake in it, and there was a phone, and there was various different things, I could vaguely remember it, and I remember the poem was kind of complimented, so I really, really liked poetry, and then... I, when I was about 13, I joined a punk band playing the drums. Right, what year would that be? That would have been, oh, I'm sure now my age, but it would have been probably something like 79 or something like that. Well, that's and, interesting. Uh, 
They're called the Raves. For a second, yes. I don't know what age you are, you know. I'm not going to tell you now. <laughs> People have to work it out. Because if you were in a punk band in 79, yeah. See, I'm 56. Yeah. Right? I was in a punk band at school. Uh, I was at school too. <laughs> I was in that classic situation where I played the school disco with ah, my punk nice band. Nice one. Like you reading a book uh-huh. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was that person. So if you were. That's everything. You can't be that different from age from me then. I'm just a bit Which I'm surprised because I assume you were younger than me. Yeah, I'm a bit younger. Yeah, so yeah, I'm, younger not really I'm, I'm not going to say what age I am. I'm not going to say what age I am, but I'm Yeah, I'm not far away from the big half century. So basically, okay. so I went to. So anyway, so I joined this band, it was called The Revs, and the reason we got into this band was my friend, best friend Brian. Their family all lived up the High Flats and shot uh, Pollock Shaw's, Shawbridge Street. And Brian's brother Howard was maybe about 18 and they were in a band called The Skulls and they were kind of a real punk band, a big group of them and they thought it was really funny when we were like 12, I was only 12 at first right. and they basically got us, we were all dressed up and we used all their equipment at first and they dressed us up as punks now so we kind of went to school with this punk gear and it caused no end of hassle. So we were kind of, I got a drum kit, uh, actually I got a marching drum first, I managed to pinched from somewhere, which I won't go into the story in the radio, it was a very bad thing, we pinched a marching drum, we used that and then we got, I got a full drum kit, I saved up, I did a milk run, and I, I did a paper run, and I saved up with that and a Christmas present got me this drum kit, and I was hopeless at the drums, and there does exist a tape, really bad, and I've got a tape, I've actually got a cassette that I want to get digitised, because mm. we were, and looking back I suppose we were, I suppose you could make it sound really cool, it wasn't particularly, but we were played like, the Falls first single, Bingo oh, Massive really? Breakout. Okay. Uh, the Cure's first single, Forest. Mm-hmm. Uh, Clash, English Civil War. And I actually sang that one, so it was the first time I ever sang. I've got a tape of this and some other ones I can't quite remember. So we we were kind of in a punk band at school. We had badges mm-hmm. made up. And the guy Barry, who I still see him time to time, he made up with loads and loads of badges. It was quite amusing that actually. I'm going on to tour then. I'll tell you a story really quickly. It was quite amusing to see because. There was loads of people at schools much older than us, so I was like going into second year wearing our badges called the Revs because they'd taken up a brick, very cliché, a brick wall in the background. Right. And I remember those people in fifth year, and I remember at one point Paul Bryan said, Oh, do you like the Revs? And this girl who was like fifth, sixth year, yeah, you wouldn't have heard of them, and she's been really kind of like snotty. And of course, we were the Revs, so it was like quite funny. So I played drums, and then I gave up music for a couple of years until my friend Peter came by with an acoustic guitar and he played House of the Rising Sun and something else, and that was me kind of hooked, so I had an acoustic guitar within a few right. months, and then right. I started playing. So what age were you then? Then I would have been a 15, right. and I was never very good at the guitar, because I couldn't really tune the guitar, it was before tuners, right. uh, so I could never really tune the and guitar. And was there music in your family or anything like that, or what, was it just that you were just part of that youth? Thing well, your punk, pals. Yeah, well, punk really did it for me at first because it was. I thought it was. I felt like that guy, you know, the guy in Chlorophenia. You know, it really was a thing. It was a total life-changing mm-hmm. thing. So I remember when the whole punk's dead thing had stopped. Like maybe like third or fourth year, I felt cheated by the whole thing. I was like, God, this kind of was it? Was it just a fashion? But the no, my mum and my dad was a really good singer in Gaelic. Except, so I probably got the kind of singing from him. Right. Okay. But didn't listen to that much music, I mean, now and again, but it was stuff like Neil Sedaka, my mum liked, and they, my dad did actually buy a Beatles box set, so that was when I first got into really good songwriters, my dad bought, so it was like, there was eight albums or something, it had all the main best Beatles <coughs> on it, so I kind of listened to that all the time. 
and the kinks they had I mean, some of they had actually okay. everybody that see that in that generation I think everybody had like a 45 of really got me and uh, what else was there was a couple of uh, yeah just songs like that I mean, well I'm out of that some of that explains the latest album then mm-hmm, yeah <laughs> yeah I love those bands <coughs> excuse me I've had this bloody cold kind of shit mm. that's terrible the coughing away while you're talking which is no good, oh, so, good. So, you, so you were in a, in a band as yeah. a teenager mm-hmm. uh, obviously I mean I've I see, I've, I've not really known you, I wouldn't say we've known each other that mm-hmm. well over the years. I mean, I've been aware of you uh-huh. uh, in the music scene. Yes, likewise. Yeah, so well, that was a long time ago now. So mm-hmm. what, what happened there? What happened after that? Well, I never really, since I started playing the acoustic at 15, I mean, I played for about maybe 15, 16, perhaps. Then... Were you trying to make it? I mean... No, I think it's no. funny when you look back and you think that how perspectives change and the whole idea of relativity because I remember at first all that I wanted to do was play a couple of gigs and you'd have thought playing a couple of gigs in some local place was making it right. and I remember at first when I started kind of first getting bands together which I'd have been about maybe I didn't actually properly put bands together until I was maybe 22 I went to live in London for a year so I was 22 right. and a few people kind of I don't know, it was quite fresh faced and stuff. So I used to have various people wanting to manage us way, way back then and put us in different situations, which never wasn't really my cup of tea. But when I first was in put my own band together when I was maybe like twenty two, I yeah, I playing a gig would have been making it playing a couple of gigs. I remember the first gig I did was yeah, it was in Shelter, a band called The Sun Clocks, mm-hmm. and that in itself was amazing. And then it would be like to play somewhere like The Hall, because that was the West End. And as you thought, if you played The Hall, that yeah. would be like, wow, playing The Hall, you know? And then, and everything's so relative, as I was saying, because then you play The Hall, and then you, to play King Tuts, God, that would be amazing. And then you headline King Tuts. And, and I think for a lot of bands, that it doesn't matter what level you're at, unless you find kind of your own piece or place and realise not to strive for more. I have friends that tour the world and I know that they're dissatisfied because they're looking up to a different thing. It's like, yeah. once you've been in Top of the Pops well, once, it's to have a number one single, yeah. or once you've one number single, it's to have two. And that whole so thing is that piece. whole, yeah. you know, something to talk about in itself, you know, I know. what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and something to come to some kind of, there was no solution or something, but something kind of way for you to deal with yourself mm-hmm. and think about it yourself that because mm-hmm. I mean I know quite a lot of musicians myself because I'm uh-huh. sure you do yeah. and some of them successful some of them not uh, and I think music if you've got the wrong head for music and the wrong head for the whole thing yeah. it's going to destroy you as a person absolutely you know? make a lot of people and, really unhappy yeah make yeah. you unhappy uh, and undermine who you think you are and all that kind of stuff you know? because you're so judging you, yourself with what others think exactly so you've got to come to some kind of understanding that what you think about it and what's good uh-huh. for you and what's healthy for you as an individual. Absolutely. I mean, I've done it personally uh-huh. yeah, and I've got my own ideas about it, but everybody's, everybody's uh-huh. different, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm no striving for anything. I'm, uh-huh. I'm striving to enjoy myself. That's, yeah, that's what I'm striving to yeah, do. Me too. You know, to play because I enjoy playing uh-huh. and playing music. Yeah. But a lot of people, even at my age, are still angst-ridden and... Uh, and upset because the world has not recognised their great talent, you know. And it's so, uh, it's a shame and I've got some close friends that are like that and you can have, you just need to keep looking at the positive things and you and, and try to get them to, real, them to realise that there's people looking at you that, that basically, they've never managed to get a band together, they've never managed yeah. to release a record and to them, 
you're like <laughs> just like a superstar yeah. or, do you know what I mean really yeah, yeah. but they see themselves they just see the dark they don't see well, they the see, unfortunately a lot of people see that they failed in what they're uh-huh, trying to do because they define themselves in a particular Absolutely. way. So they mm-hmm. define themselves as a singer or they define themselves as a song, whatever it is, yeah. as a musician mm-hmm. or whatever. And they haven't done what they thought they wanted to do, which was to be a successful in a kind of conventional yeah, sense of the word, you know, which is be on the telly or whatever, mm-hmm. or have a hit record or, or whatever it is yeah. they think success is. So if they don't do that, then it eats away at them. I had that know. for a bit myself, it was a number of years ago. And I did feel like that, you know, and it was like, I did totally view myself as like, I've having completely failed. But by the same token, I then came to realise that I had no regrets at all. I mean, there's a number of times where I was, I was talking about management, there's a lot of different managers over the years, and there's times where I knocked back a lot of really well, well, well a couple of times really well-known managers, and people would think it was crazy. The choices I've made, and I stuck with band members, sometimes those choices where I basically had to ditch a whole band and to go with somebody and I never mm. ever did it right. and I look back and I've got no regrets and people said said to me ah but they would have probably done it to you but it really didn't matter because I'm still friends with these people that I was in these bands with and like I think I'd have been a rubbish famous rich person I would just have went to extremes and drank far too much and I'm really happy now yeah. I've got a lovely wife a lovely two kids two dogs <laughs> and yeah. basically I'm really happy I'm making music as you said I'm enjoying it so I don't think I would be well, in such guy. a good place if I'd managed to be touring the world yeah. for 10 we're years we were talking about a podcast before I turned the mic on and it's a, it's a really good podcast mm-hmm. called uh, Cocaine and Rhinestones right, right? Okay, yeah. which is a guy he, he looks at country artists mm-hmm. most of them off the beaten track uh-huh. but he, he does one he, and it's like a, a season he does Like he does, he's only done 10 and that's the first season uh-huh. And they're absolutely brilliant, brilliant fantastic. But he did one one week, which was about uh, kind of success, right. looking at this idea of success. And he, he did a lot of research into people who have been successful. And there's some facts related to folk that make it, which is that they have much shorter lives mm-hmm. than people who don't. <laughs> one thing is happiness levels. What I've found is of all the people I know that all the other musicians I know there is no kind of linking factors between success and uh, and happiness well, that's like, this, uh, this record bizarrely has been quite successful so far it's not even released yet but I'm not any happier than I was like six months ago or six months before that you know it's just all you just people yeah. strive for things uh-huh. because well I, don't, I mean I don't know I mean, I'm not going to bloody answers but I suppose they strive for something which is kind of imaginary mm-hmm. in some sense <laughs> you, yeah. know, you know they think well, I get that, you know. There's a great thing in a book I read recently, actually, and it's just that as well, that, what book was it? Uh, I can't remember. I think, basically what it says, though, it said, when somebody became famous, no matter what it was, whether it was for acting or writing or anything else, they basically, all the issues they had and all the things that made them, it wasn't actually the fact of not being a famous actor yeah. or a successful musician. They took the same things with them, they arrived at that same place, and then they, suddenly it was tougher because they had to realise... God, it's nothing to do with that thing that I wanted. Yeah, this is yeah, me, and that's that, pretty right? tough to, yeah. I think, to, to accept. So yeah. who they are is kind of magnified. So all their weaknesses are magnified, uh-huh. and all their whatever. You know. Well, I have a couple of days bizarre. I was helping out with something at the weekend at the SECC, and I was with well, one of the compere guys was a guy from Still Game, with Mark Cox, right. who plays a uh, Tam, and also I was out drinking recently with a while ago Gavin who plays Bobby the Barman and we're in and it was quite nuts I've never experienced that level of 
I suppose people constantly wanting something. It's like I sat with Gavin, I think we were there for about two hours, and you must be talking about 20 odd people in that time. We're up saying, Can I have a photograph? Uh, and at the weekend there, yeah. to, to Paul, to Mark, sorry, it was like, uh, again, it was just constant, yeah. absolutely constant. So Tom Hunter, actually, I've been doing some things recently that I've been, I've been introducing him at some stuff I was doing to do with Kilt Walk. Right. And again, just cause he loves it, <laughs> he's a nice man, but he's, he, he really, you can see he actually really enjoys it, whereas you can see he probably doesn't get it as much as Mark or Gavin, because they were really good with all the public, I mean, really, yeah. really good, yeah. but you could see it and they really smiled everyone, but you could see kind of like, man, I must get quite yeah, tired. I can imagine it would man. be, yeah. But all these guys are good fun. Isn't it great not to be successful? <laughs> 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 anyway, so you're, just to get the, the narrative, Yes. Uh, you're back in your 20s now. Yes, that's it. Uh, you're still playing music. Mm-hmm. What's, what's happening then? What's in your so I was in a band called them Sun Clocks. First there was a band called Atomic Clocks. For some mm. reason I've always been drawn to the idea of time. And then, so it was called Sun Clocks and then I sp- folded that band, it was, that was a rhythm and blues band, we played a lot of really kind of cool Elmer James right. and uh, just Is that in London or was no, this in Glasgow? No, it was in Glasgow and at the time actually when kind of R&B, what I used to call R&B, Willie Dixon songs and stuff, oh, it was right. a real kind of resurgence. Yeah. The band was really, really popular in live scenes, so we used to have hundreds of gigs and we cut a lot of money and packed out places and Are you doing that? It. You were playing music solely or did you have another job? Uh, I was a cycle courier actually, I worked right. for Pony Express half the time, so I, right. always, I did that for about 10 years right. actually, I would work for a courier company and to get money and then I would chuck it and I would focus music full right. time for maybe six months right. and then I'd be completely skint and I'd have money to pay back so then I would go and work paying money back. But in your head, you are a musician? And that's what you did, and that's what you're trying to do. Yeah, well, right? I suppose that's what my aim and ambition was. Yeah. I loved being a courier as well. Being a courier was a great job. Right. It was a great community of other couriers, and it was a great, exciting thing to mm-hmm. do. So, and yeah. you you writing songs at that point? I was at that point. I was trying to in the sun clocks. I was trying to, but then maybe. Did we, no, in fact, you know what? I don't even think at that point it was mostly all blues covers. Right. We did the Helter Skelter as well. Right. So. But then, just after that folded, I put together the Moon Dials. I remember the Moon And the Moon Dials, yeah. we played a couple of Richarlsons, but straight away we had our own set. Yeah. And that band was interesting because we were fortunate, we were just very, I suppose, young and brave. And at one point, we were playing, and we're, it was the same kind of set, we are doing quite well live, getting a lot yeah. of gigs. And then we decided just to go to Europe. So one drunken night, we, we literally got a school atlas that I had and we, of Europe, about Europe, and we drew, we'd literally a pencil, we drew Stevie, it'd been, been the band Stevie Jackson, who's now in Berlin, Sebastian. Mm-hmm. It was still, Steve like a brother, you know what I mean? Yeah. But all that band, we still see uh-huh. each other like brothers. Yeah. He, he'd been in Prague and bizarrely, he'd got us a gig at the Prague Opera Hall, which is just right. bizarre right. because he'd been there, he used to have these indie, and the right. indie just big kind of rock nights. Right. So he'd got us this gig. So we then, literally drew a line from Glasgow all the way down to looking at Dover mm. through Paris and we just were taking in every major capital on the way to Prague and I think we went to six countries and we took our generator PA and we would rock up and just play in town squares right, and we had okay. a couple of gigs booked on our way to the Prague Opera Hall right. where, we, where we played it and it was amazing it was just packed out like yeah, it was a massive amazing. place yeah. and then we made our way back and within I think we were only back home in Glasgow and I think we were quite a, that great a band actually I think we were pretty 
uh, makeshift. But, but I remember at the time people had said when we came back, there's a total difference because we were playing all the time. We're out busking as well. Yeah. People said it just the band came out a different band, and we went back again within a month. Right. And we did a bigger van. This time we had somebody to drive us a much bigger van, and we did the same thing again. Yeah. I mean, I remember the Moondials. That's probably the one connection I remember which is slightly stronger than some of the other ones, only because some of my pals mm-hmm. were pals of the moon dial yeah. and stuff. Uh, I was a slightly different generation. I was an older person. Not much. <laughs> but I uh, I used to play the hall and stuff as well yeah. with bands. But Graham McIntosh and... Uh, oh, yeah, Mick Tosh. And, uh, yeah, all the, those guys. It's maybe his band at the time. Yeah. Uh, the Louis Wallachian. That's what they were called. Yeah, it was Mick right, and Louis was right. with Brendan, right. and then in Mick Kinsler and all that group yeah. as well. He's been the company. Yeah, so they, so I knew a lot of those people. They were of your ages, uh-huh. I think. So they knew you, and I, yeah. I think I'd probably seen you in the pub in the yeah. hall and stuff like that as well. Because yeah. you know, they were around <coughs> at the time, you know. It was great fun uh, that band. Yeah. And what we did is a big difference actually was interesting it's funny they had different generations isn't it because what we did was different from other bands at that time which gave us a different a freedom was that all bands had to hire PAs at that point yeah. and a PA used to cost 50 quid or 40 quid it was a little small vocal PA yeah. and we very soon as somebody gave me a PA somebody bought a PA or from somebody and it was basically then we just paid up really quickly from playing gigs so we suddenly had a, a pretty good PA the bizarre was actually used at the, the desk and that they used in the first two Bell and Sebastian albums. I right, still got it because right. they loved the reverb sound. Right, Stuart, okay. Then yeah. after the Moondow spell, Steve joined Bell and Sebastian and they used the PA for all the early rehearsals. Right. So we had that PA which meant that we could then just go anywhere and then make more money. And we could also do gigs that didn't always pay as much because we had yeah. our own PA. Yeah, yeah. And we then this guy Terry, one of, again one of my brothers is looking now, is big Terry Stoke. He, we met Terry, he had this huge big Mercedes his van so those kind of things all coming together I mean massive van and he kind of came on board and we've been proud friends ever since so he then just drove us around everywhere yeah. right to we started touring France a lot right and what age were you then? I think I'd have been about in my early 20s right I'm not very good Stevie okay. and right. Stevie and John and Gary they're all great they'll tell you that was 94 and 95 right, I have right. no memory for that kind of thing okay. so at that point I mean what are you thinking you're, in a, you're now in a band uh-huh. It looks like I was doing pretty good. Uh-huh. Uh, what are you thinking? You think this is it? Is this? Is this the? Oh, I thought it was. Oh, the road. I thought it was an absolute road to be the Rolling Stones right. or the Views. I thought that's it. We mean, I will have a guitar shaped swimming pool before right. anyway. Okay. But then the same token, I was also working drunk and get ourselves very relaxed at times. Right. So we did apply ourselves. And we had an album's worth of songs. Right. Probably should have applied more of the songs. Were you writing, writing the songs? You think? I was writing the songs, but I wrote right. some with uh, Stevie, help with some, John, right. and others. Right. But we, I was more. I've kind of always been, yeah. I suppose I've always wrote most of the songs. Right. And bands I've played in because I just love words. So right. that was what happened. Is we did think it was going to happen. It was all going to happen. But that was the period where, for example, our top London management label came and seen us at Tuts. And they wanted, they said it would have me and Stevie. And it was literally, we'll take you guys on. They were basically based in number right. one Star Street. But right. it was kind of like, we'd have to put in a new rhythm section for you. And there was, I'll say his name, he's basically gone now. Elliot Davis, actually, at the time. So Elliot Davis, wait, 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 what number? Yeah. So Elliot Davis managed Wait, Wait, Wait in the Precious organisation. Now they were at, I think Wait, Wait, Wait were in the ninth week at number one. Right. And Elliot wanted to, to manage me. And at that point, so, but again, 
he wasn't I think it was one of these ones yeah. we decided not to go for it and we went for this really small management company which didn't really work out right playing bottom yeah, of so it was so, that, <laughs> so it was a bit of a strange one so there's all these kind of decisions that some people would have thought oh you must regret that because I mean, imagine a band number one in the ninth week at number one big offices up in Spears Wharf I mean there was always whenever I went up for meetings there there'd be like all the empty champagne bottles I'd never seen a bottle of champagne it's like so and we knocked them back because I don't know why because we just again it was a kind of thing it was we wanted to band we were a band of brothers and yeah. we wanted to stay together yeah so what well, yeah so but no it was good fun so yeah. that was a, and that point basically the Moondows didn't last very long right. it was a period of about three or four years and we did everything we were kind of lived together and I stayed in a church in Gibson Street John stayed in that church we both lived within like a stone's throw each other right. we'd have in each other's pockets and we used to go and literally sleep in the back of vans together and all the rest of it but the it just imploded really quickly. I think we'd done everything so fast. And there was that point in the 80s where almost every band, they were just putting on an Adidas t-shirt, which was looking cool at the time, a Britpop. And basically, every day in their auntie, we're all getting signed all these deals right. and the rest of it. And although Sony had been really interested and different labels were interested, it didn't come to anything. And I think at the end, we were just so tired of the whole thing that it just kind of imploded. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah I suppose that was it. I suppose bands kind of last forever, yeah. I mean, no. Uh, what the, the style I can't actually remember uh, the style of the music but it was kind of guitar driven that's what I remember guitar driven was kind of country uh, country kind of rock I suppose you would call it with a kind of Rolling Stones edge yeah. but also a slight punky I think when they were reviewing the NME once they said it was like the elect what was it called some of it was like a seed stuff, some of it, right. kind of, what was it, some said I liked, I can't remember who they were. So you uh, put out a record from yeah, we put, out, we, put out, we put out, we put out a, a single called Never Knew Love which we recorded in Riverside it was probably a bit cleaner than our actual live sound so looking back I don't even I think a lot of people like that record I'm not as keen on it because it was it was maybe sanitised a bit it was maybe like an, also an 80s production an early 90s production whereas they were a real raucous live right, kind of band right. and then we brought another single with Electric Honey and and then finally another single, which I don't even know. I think we deleted that. That's when the band was splitting up. So we never released an album. And at one time, I'm kind of busy, too busy at the moment, but at some point, maybe years, I might pull all this stuff together because we did, did a lot of radio for like live sessions for BBC yeah, Radio Scotland. So all that stuff, I would like to put it all together and just put, put it online. Yeah. But again, one of these days. Yeah, yeah. So they broke up. What happens next? So then I, I think... I joined White Out. <laughs> so basically, I was a friend had got money for me to do a demo for One Little Indian, and they were going to pay for me to demo some new songs. And then I, so I went and demoed them. And then at that time, then White Out had a deal with Silvertone, and their singer had left. And the three people in the band, Eric Paul and Jim McDermott, who was drafted in as a session drummer because their drummer had also left. So. Uh, then they needed a singer and they kept on thinking they would just do it as a three piece so they kept on saying to Silvertone yeah 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 and Silvertone eventually said no we're serious we signed a four piece like kind of these guys only singing it was like Eric and Paul were doing the singing and they went no we weren't a singer yeah so basically they drafted me in and I was offered in because they were really it was always they were always the white out were always in the paper and they recognised like big in Japan and massive in Japan and the Silvertone deal, deal was amazing basically that deal was way in the old days if they'd taken up the second option which is why I was drafted in for the second album Silvertone had to spend and this will seem ludicrous in this day and age but Silvertone were committed to spend a million pounds on promotion and that's the, that was a deal they had a million pounds in promotion so it was a hell of a big investment for Silvertone so 
we'd done the whole thing, but I remember the Roddy who signed the Stone Roses was there and our guy, and Roddy came up to see us in the place with the hearse, this horrible place in Greenock where you can hear yourself singing, and the Roddy was saying to them, right man, we need some new songs, these songs aren't going to be good enough, and I mean, I suppose, I, it's not for me to say, because I wasn't involved in all the songs, they had an album, I right. actually was to learn to sing an album, right. and uh, some of them were really good, some of them maybe could have been better, and Roddy, <coughs> It was just going, no, there's your, you're not, they're not good enough. You need more, more new songs. And guys, it was up to them. I mean, they're great. Okay, and they invited you to be part of the songwriting team. No, I think they basically wanted to. They were just. I don't think particularly wanted another singer to come in. You know, it's right. like, and so Jim, Jim wasn't bored here. He was. Right. So I'm not sure. And uh, but anyway. So, I mean, it went well, they will still see, it's actually still see, I've seen Eric recently, and Eric's one of the best guitarists around, he's magic, it's like, uh, he's playing with Lenny Carson's now, who's brilliant as well, so, that point, they didn't, I suppose, they're looking back, the band didn't really listen, and they just kind of went, no, no, they'll just do it, they'll just do it, so we played all these different gigs, we did a tour of Scotland, we did some recording, the one point they played Sleazy's on a Monday night, <coughs> I think sold out like six nights of oh, Sleazy's, right. which was meant to, and it was yeah. literally, there's people crawling for the roof, it was like, it was the only uncomfortable place was yeah. on the stage, boiling, and then we, uh, so then Silvertone came along and the whole team for Silvertone was there, you know, it was a massive big thing for the first final Sleazy's gig and they didn't take the option up. Mm-hmm. So I left the band like within months because again, I think well, Eric, what well, he wanted to sing, he wanted to be the singer of right. the band, which was his songs, I don't right. understand that. And he's a great singer. So so then I left, and which was stupid because I'd never ever given, probably looking back, it would have been better to have given the demo to one little Indian and do my own things but that's a decision where I just chose it because I thought it would be like insta fame <laughs> I don't know about fortune signed to Silvertone right, Silvertone's right. such cool they was like fuck their own songs I don't care about them and then I still got that demo right. and uh, so I didn't even give even though they paid for it I right. didn't even give the demo to them and then I I think then I just didn't do anything for about a year until I put together the Ducks and that was like a garage punk band right okay was that you were you didn't do anything because you were what fed up or because it just was a break you just I think I was actually looking back there was probably about a period of a year where I was actually quite down right. and I hadn't really realised it and I probably had yeah at the end of that period for a number of different reasons. I was probably I mean I've never never suffered. A lot of really close friends have suffered from depression and I, I haven't. But well, I don't well, I think maybe then I was actually but I just didn't realise. I just drank loads of wine to myself through it and and uh, but I think possibly I was a bit depressed then. But I, I, I looking at that back, point, you've been through quite back. a lot of different ups and downs, yeah. you know, with the bands and stuff, yeah. and getting signed and no getting signed, and yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that was much. To, I don't. Yeah. I think more. Ah, yeah. I'm just maybe a combination of different things. Right. So and then Ducks was a great band. There was like the band that had ten drummers. So we'd, at one point, Richard Coburn from Bell Sebastian played in the band. With Gary playing in the band, who was in Astrid. With a. Uh, Nick, who's in Phil Spector, is a brilliant drummer. With Massimo Franco, is a brilliant painter drummer. We listened through loads of different drummers. Mm-hmm. It, was, it really was like Spinal Tap. And Bob, it was Bob Cody, was the main person in that band with me and Adam Scott. And what Ronan. was the idea behind this band? It was a real kind of seeds. It was a real kind of seeds, uh, kind of pop punk kind of band. And we, we did record an album with Liam Watson, who did the first White Stripes stuff. And Liam was right. a great guy. I mean, okay. experienced in Hackney. 
and uh, he's really funny. He's like totally wears the white kind of coat, and he's like speaks to George Martin, but he's like, "Gentlemen, are you ready? Ready?" And he's just very, very posh, very, very. He's not very posh, but he's just a brilliant guy. Right. And it was that was a great experience because I'd recorded in like Riverside and various places, and it was all multi-track and pro tools and stuff. This was all live, right. so we knew that would rehearsed a lot, and it was nuts with Liam because I went in to do the vocals. We would would recorded everything live, pretty much in a few takes. We did seven songs in like two days, and then. I'd love to go back and try that kind of recording again. So then we went into the vocals in the next day and did the first vocal and I was kind of waiting for the usual or well, with that bit, could you do it again? We're going to do this again and maybe we'll look to do a comp which is basically compiling different versions of you singing the same song like taking the, the first chorus from the first version whatever else and putting it all together. But Liam was just saying, okay, uh, how's that? And I said, I think it was okay. He said, yep, okay, so next. And I was like, that, ah, okay. And then we moved on to the next song. And again, we just did one take. And he says, right. eh, how was that for you? And I said, I think it was quite good. What do you think of him? He went, yep, good for me. Are we going to move on? I said, well, well she's she not going to listen to it. <laughs> she's not going to listen to it. And Liam said, why? Because <laughs> it can really spoil you. You're back in the room, you listen to it, and he's like, oh, because that would be better. Yeah. And he's going, why? And I was going, I don't, eh, because you usually do it. okay fine and so then we did like something like five songs like just one after the yeah, other yeah. and I think in the third or fourth one it took two takes and one took three takes yeah. but it kind of stopped after it and it was and then but literally they're all done and somebody went out to buy a slackage <laughs> somebody had say went, one of the bandits went out for a wonder and they came back in and were going how are you doing the vocals and again they'd been in the studio so they were expecting all that so we've just finished the first one we think we're going to comp it and, and the guy was going just want to do they like what like, <laughs> <laughs> what do you just want to do and that was that and he put it on because you know he, he, he bounced everything and then we cuts the tape you know it was all yeah well, I remember all that of course brilliant yeah and, uh, and I'd never seen that before yeah. I mean, I'd recorded the tape before yeah. and then it was recorded it's a great album recorded it most of it there some in core studios some in Savah and then of course right. what happened was the classic we got the, the promos pressed we brought a single out and then it got single of the week in record collector and it was called Shining Moon and with B-side it was called Who You Gonna Slay it was a good song good songs and like uh, and it got single of the week a record of the single of the month in record collector and then we were getting ready to release the album and I just get so pissed off with the, the, I just with everything the band was just it was a great band but I think everybody was going through different things and I was about of my daughter and I remember just it was all it was all getting a bit negative, just with this and that. And I just thought to myself, I remember saying one night, and I the guys are great, and I still love them all dearly. But I just thought it's great when you suddenly strike you. It's like an epiphany, epiphany. I do use that word. <laughs> and I said like, uh, I suddenly thought to myself, I was heading into rehearsal, and I was going to go, oh God, rehearsal in Berkeley, nine twelve. And I just thought, I don't have to do this. And it was about half seven. <laughs> I thought and it was almost like suddenly I went, right. I don't have to do this. And I just phoned Doug up and I said, Listen, guys. You're off. I um, don't want to do this anymore. I said, but I'll just take a break for six months and we'll, we'll discuss it in six months, see if we still want to do this. So the album never came out. One day I would like to bring the album out because it's a crack of the people. We've done a hundred copies for like my friends, family, and and, uh, and people still really like that album. There were good you, songs. Were you signed? Uh, no, 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 that was all. That was again, we'd set up, I'd set up a record label years ago with the Moondials. 
So we're doing self-releases, one of the first right. DIY labels, I mean I know they're saying there's DIY labels like Postcard, they were somebody who'd set the label up. It's one of the first bands that set up, not that many yeah. bands had set up labels at that point, so we set up the Maker Holding Company, and the aim for that was to release records by our friends, but not just records, to do a lot of things, there's a lot of graffiti art and there's a lot of different things, and it's basically attacked as a kind of umbrella company for loads of people who knew to do yeah. things under yeah. gigs and stuff. So we'd released some Mundial stuff and that. In fact, on that yeah. we actually released John Fratelli's first album from the Fratelli's. Oh right, okay. As well, and then well, that's interesting uh, in itself because you know one of the things that I'm aware of you doing, you know, in the last few years is setting up, you know, gigs and sort of organising things for other people mm. and, and having that kind of side to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming from what you're saying that some of that started back. Then, then. Well, that was the organising thing kind of happened by default because we we used to have different support bands, and we played, and then we ended up with a lot of different meeting, a lot of different connections, and putting people together, and then just putting on kind of bigger nights and, and putting friends' bands on and kind of helping them, and then I suppose well those kind of nights I think you're talking about that led to all the Mary Hill Hall nights that we did those the fundraisers that was because I think it was Oxx Jam so I don't know when it was it was maybe about 8 years ago or 10 years ago there was a scene a thing about Oxx Jam put on a gig for Oxfam and I thought why not so I put on something called Three Song Tag in the research club and it made a bit of money but it wasn't enough that you would kind of no dog that was that was a real charity one and then I did a couple at the RAF club and they started making money but not enough money that you'd be giving somebody like £3.50 if there's loads of different musicians involved. Or, so we ended up just saying we would do them as fundraisers, so we gave the money to different good mm-hmm. causes. And uh, a lot of cat, kind of McMillan's or Cancer Research, or a lot of kids, things like Childline, so I thought right, it was really okay. important. Service this this Scottish equivalent, you know, a friend that worked there, they did a brilliant job. So that, that's kind of how they came about, and then they became really successful, and people liked them, and then a lot of people were involved in helping those. I, I always get the credit for them, which is really not fair, because... Uh, it was Stevie again because Stevie always helped with them and putting together house bands and we would record in there. Stevie, Stevie Jackson, so right, he's right, always Stevie helped Jackson. with them. As is Tam and the guy yeah. Ack, so Tam McNaught and Ack, uh, Atkinson. I mean, like, they 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 done loads of stuff. And I think maybe because I was the one contacting the bands or standing up on the stage, it was always little Warren's nights, and they were never my nights. They still aren't. I mean, in fact, right. I'm going to put on one soon with Jamie Houston and Noel. O'Donnell, from right. Daddy Skies, in fact, both Natic Lights, a great band, and again, the chances are it will be, like, be one of my nights, but it's, they're not my nights. There's loads of people behind the scenes helping, right. and they couldn't be done without those folk. So between that band, which you've decided to put a, what's the word, note on the head, mm-hmm. and I suppose many decades later, maybe not that many. No, it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, have you been through the cycle a few times, or...? No, that after that, The Ducks was the last band. And then I, uh, I did when my daughter was born, Eva, I didn't do anything. I didn't right. sing in public for nearly two years. Right. And, and it was strange because then I was asked to sing at a wedding for something, just a couple of songs, people's weddings. Like, again, groups, house groups put together and I was to come up as a guest singer and I remember going up to do a couple of them and there's one in the big hall in Northern War and I mean being terrified which have gone from being not really like, no nerves mm-hmm. really to like you know like, really scared it's funny you say really that scared. because I've had that I mean I've been playing music since I was a teenager you know mm-hmm. and uh, I had, I've only well when I first started playing I mean I'm mm-hmm. going to take up time with this story but when I first started playing uh, I remember playing Strathclyde University mm-hmm. 
and I could hardly play my guitar because I was so frightened. Yeah. My fingers were sweating. And uh-huh. I could, you know, yeah. it, was, it was difficult. But I actually got over that quite quickly, uh-huh. and I had never ever really had nerves mm-hmm. uh, until recently. I played two gigs. Did you? I actually had stage fright twice. Okay. Which was had there been a gap before you'd played well, them? Uh, well, see, we played in the uh, ten right, the ten years ten uh-huh. gigs uh-huh. with uh, a wee band. Yeah. Uh, which I really loved. Uh-huh. They were really great, Graham, and yeah. uh, and I, I had female singing and stuff, you know. So, so I would, I, the weight was not on me, you know. I'd yeah. Singing yeah. a couple of songs uh-huh. and. I was singing a couple of songs and it was a nice wee band and it was a nice sound and then I played two solo things for ten writers and my, my brain just kind of went inside myself you know? <laughs> just, <laughs> just, just kind of weird too much about it yeah and, you know I was just I just had these two bad experiences uh-huh. you know I thought, fuck where did that come from you know it's like another way to get that will always appear quite relaxed yeah you're a very you know? relaxed performer uh, you're very kind of conscious so that performer. was a bit, of a, a bit of a shocker for me and then I, I mean I, and I didn't have a gig I, that was like only recent mm-hmm. I've only done one gig since you need to go and do some uh, on stages you know, or something and yeah. just get that's, that's a good right. way to so do it in a week you could kill that in a week yeah that's probably right you know but it just was a bit of a kind of frightener well actually my, my problems in terms of playing live are always to do with my voice you know because I've because I've got asthma and I'm always right. getting bloody problems okay. with my voice all the time so when I have problems with my voice, I was thinking, I'm getting a sock, you know, I can't I can't, I can't, I can't arrive, I play a gig and I'm sounding terrible, you know, and I can't reach notes. But yeah, you'll like be more like, critical than anybody you know, else is, it's uh, always the way, we're always more critical of ourselves than anybody else is, no problem. Yeah, so, so as I say, I, just when you were mentioning that, I'm just kind of throwing that in, I've had that. Oh, so I was terrified, <laughs> and then I think I, why, and when did I put Starry's Guys together? I can't even remember. I think it, no, it was... Well, I think that's a good place to stop, uh, part one, because Warren is just putting Starry Skies together uh, and the album release, or the latest album release, is tomorrow in Oren Moore. So what I'll do is I'll leave it at that and I'll get part two together and I'll put that out tomorrow. Okay. So I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, give us a a wee review on the iTunes or whatever and uh, get in touch. Okay. Catch you tomorrow. Bye.